Well, this, um, this September, starting September 9th, we're going to do another Wednesday night worship service in the evening. And we're going to do an eight-week series, and we're going to focus on testimonies and hearing what God is doing in the lives of fellow church members. And hopefully, we'll be able to encourage one another through that. But as I was thinking about that upcoming series and the testimonies, I thought about part of my own story and found that it would be really helpful this morning as I preach on this text from Samuel um, to share a little bit about what God has done in my own life. And as I was reflecting, um, I didn't, I'd, not, I'd not counted it before, but there have been three different times when God has asked me or Heather and I to give up a perfectly good job without a really good job waiting in the wings at all. And the first time this happened was when I was a young engineer right out of college and was living in Chicago. And Heather had a job at the, at the college, at Loyola College. And the Lord changed my call. And I ended up letting go of engineering and taking on a sweet youth ministry internship that paid $12,000 no benefits, one full year, full-time. That was it. I laid down engineering for that job. And then, uh, a a little while later, a couple years later, I was in South Carolina at an Episcopal church with a full-time job as a youth minister. And again, Heather had a a job in the college of Charleston, and the Lord said to her this time, you and Mike are going to England too in a prayer conference. She heard that in her head, not audibly. I was sitting next to her, so it wasn't an audible voice, but it sure sounded like it to her. And we had to quit our jobs and move to England for three months, where we were just doing an unpaid study sabbatical, really, to go and learn from a church there. And we learned in the process of that that Heather was also pregnant with Hannah, our first. So I can still remember the three-hour phone conversation I had when I told my parents that Congrats, you're going to be grandparents. Oh, and we quit both our jobs and we need some money. (laughs) That was a hot phone conversation. And my grandfather's wisdom was just spouting back through my mom. You never leave a job until you have another one lined up. Never. That's just foolish. Sounds like you're burning bridges all over the place. And then again, I was in Houston. We were working at a church plant that was an Anglican mission church. And the Lord called us to go to seminary. And so, again, left a perfectly good job and then went to pay money to people to train me theologically. Now, I can stand here as a person who has a full-time job with good salary and benefits in a very secure place and tell you, oh, it was so great. Looking back, it's always great. I go, oh, yeah, of course. Well, there was God moving me from engineering into ministry, and then there was God preparing me in England for the new kind of ministry we would do in Houston and helping this church plant get started, and then he was giving me theological training so that I could serve this church well. And looking back, it's very easy. And if I could stand here now and tell myself, then none of the anxiety would have been there, but then none of the opportunity for growth would have been there as well. And here's the thing. This is the problem that we have is we are constantly tempted to trust in things other than God, that we are looking for crutches to hold ourselves up in everywhere but God, whether it's job security, financial things, relationships, whatever it might be, we are tempted to trust in those things instead of trusting in the Lord. And God is very serious about wanting our hearts and wanting us to trust him. And the very first and great commandment is this, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And he's jealous for us. And what do we do? We 
constantly are putting things in a place of God in our lives to trust in those things. And here's the thing about learning this lesson. You never learn it in prosperity. You never learn it in wealth. You never learn it when things are going really well. To learn this lesson, those things have to be stripped away and they don't come in times of comfort. That's the lesson, is learning how when there's nothing left, I cry out to God. So that later when things come, I remember that place and I still cry out to God. So I think about Job. Job in chapter one, verse 21 of of the book attributed to his name, Job says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job had to learn that lesson in a very difficult way. Not only Job, but King David had to learn that lesson in a very difficult way. There was a song written about 3,000 years ago, and it goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. I hope it was a little more catchy in Hebrew, because it really is not very good in English. And, and that song is what they were singing, and it was a well-known song. David went out And he was very successful in his military conquests. And as he came back in, riding on his grand horse with all of his soldiers with him, the women of the town would come out, and that was the song they were singing. Saul has slain his thousand, but David is tens of thousands. It was so well known that later when David is fleeing from Saul and goes over to his enemy, the Philistines, he thought they could help him. When he gets there, they go, isn't this David, the one they sing the song about? David has slain his tens of thousands. Those were our people he, he killed. And so, of course, David is in a tight spot in that situation. But that song was so well known. It was being sung not just in Israel, but in, in the Philistine areas as well. Now, that song is a song that would really bother Saul. If I was the king, I would say, wait a minute. I'm the one who put him in charge of that part of my military. So his success is really my success. Right? I mean, and it's sort of true. Because he gave David the opportunity, and David went and was successful. So it should, the credit should flow uphill. But not when a song comes out like that. You know, only thousands for you, Saul. But David, he's the real warrior. Tens of thousands for him. And certainly Saul's hearing that as they come back in. And it starts to really bother him. Furthermore, there's this other part of the narrative going on where God has said, you have not been faithful. I am removing you, and I am raising up another king one after my own heart. And Saul is beginning to put together through the unusual success of David that David is that one. Now let's consider some of the things that David could have been tempted to trust in that God peels away one by one so that he is left with nothing but the Lord. He was given an honor. He got to, as a musician, he got to go into the king of the land, into his chamber and play his instrument and sing songs that would soothe the king who was, had troubled a demonic influence in his life. He had a troubled, troubling spirit. An evil spirit was upon him. And when David would come in, that would calm down. What a great honor that was. I know, you know, we have our different political opinions, but wouldn't it be interesting if you had access to the White House? And I mean behind closed doors. You could sit in there on the couch in the Oval Office and have just a chat with the president. You would see some different things about him. You would get to know him. You would be given a great honor in the land. David had that. Not only that, but he had one of the king's own daughters as his wife. Remember when he slew the giant last week? The prize was not only 
not paying taxes in wealth, but the king's own daughter in marriage. And so when the oldest one comes up for marriage, Saul deceives and gives her to somebody else. But then he learns that his other daughter was in love with David. And this pleased him because he sought an opportunity to hurt David. Sure, you can marry my daughter, then I'll make good on my promise, but here's the deal. You have to go and kill a hundred Philistines and bring proof to me. David, who all along was saying, I'm not worthy to be in the king's family. Far be it from me to marry one of the king's daughters. He was delighted when this bride price was put out there because then he thought, I can at least do something to prove my worthiness. So he goes off and doesn't just do 100, he gets 200 and foils the plan and ends up marrying the, daughter, the other daughter of Saul. And then his son, Saul's son, Jonathan, becomes a best friend to David. If you've had a really, really good friend, you recognize that that is a rare thing. That is a gift from God to have a truly a, a best friend. And they don't come easily. It happens maybe a couple times in life to have a really gifted, a really good friend, good friendship. He had this with Jonathan. Their hearts were knit together right from the time they met. And Jonathan, who was heir to the throne, was willing to lay down his throne because he loved David so much. So he had a good friend, a best friend, a BFF. He was also an officer. Because of these military conquests, he kept being promoted. He had a sweet job in the military, a top job. And then he had the prophet Samuel, who was the one who anointed him, who was the one who had given him wise advice. And all of these things are peeled away. First of all, it starts one time when he's there in the king's chambers singing songs to calm the king's heart. But they're at war. The king has a spear in his hand. David's sitting over in the corner playing his guitar. It was really a lyre, but it's like a kind of harp thing. And he's singing a song. And then Saul is just so overcome with jealousy and envy at this David who is, who is going to supplant him as the king, that he takes his spear for the second time, this is the second time he's done this, and he tries to pin him to the wall with it and hurls it at him. David ducks, the spear sticks into the wall, and then it says in the end of the section we read, it says, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped into the night. He goes to his house And his daughter says, you've got to get out of here. Lowers him out through the wall, sneaks him out under the cover of darkness, and then lies when Saul says, why did you deceive me? Then she betrays David and says, David said he was going to kill me if I didn't let him go. And then Jonathan, of course, has to stay loyal to his father. He's in his presence all the time at meals. He can't just go go, go hiding with David, so they're separated now. And then he's obviously lost his job because the military has been tasked with killing David. So he can't lead that military anymore because he's the target. And Samuel's not a good place for him either because everybody knows the prophet Samuel, so he can't hide with Samuel. Anytime he goes where Samuel is, everybody knows where they both are. So he's literally been peeled down to nothing. He's lost his, his honor, his wife, his best friend, his job, and his counselor. That's a good country song. You know, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that I'm not a big fan of country music, and somebody told me my new favorite joke after that service. What do you get when you play a country song in reverse? You get your dog back, you get your truck back, you get your wife back, you get your job back. Love that joke. Come on, it's funnier than that. (laughs) They laughed at nine o'clock. You guys are tough. But anyway, all these things get stripped away from him so that he can be prepared for when God is going to restore everything back to him. He's, he's getting a heart transplant of sorts. 
There's a Carmelite monk in Spain in the 1500s who was a very faithful man and was imprisoned for his faith and his call of reform to the church. And the leaders didn't like it, and they put him in prison. And he wrote a number of works while he was in there. And the one that became his famous work is called The Dark Night of the Soul. And through the trials and his faithfulness to God in those trials, he became known as St. John of the Cross. That's just what they call him, St. John of the Cross. Listen to this excerpt from The Dark Night of the Soul, because most of us know this experience. And if you don't know it yet, you will. After a soul has been converted to God, That soul is nurtured and caressed by the Holy Spirit. Like a loving mother, God cares for and comforts the infant soul by feeding it spiritual milk. Such souls find great delight in this stage. They will begin praying with great urgency and perseverance. They will engage in all kinds of religious activities because of the joy they experience in them. But there will come a time when God will bid them to grow deeper He will remove the previous consolation from the soul in order to teach it virtue and to prevent it from developing vice. So, Soul in the City just happened. A number of kids made commitments to Christ. They had a spiritual high. And our wise staff and leaders were cautioning them, saying, there is a time coming when you won't feel like you feel right now. Will you still praise the Lord then? That's the question. What about when it's hard? Where do you turn for support? The dark night of the soul is about growing virtue in you and avoiding vice and helping you grow as someone who depends on the Lord. King David wrote some amazing psalms, and he wrote these because of the pressure that he was in. You know, this is very common in the arts as well. Some of the greatest artists, both visual arts as well as music and and other things, because of some great difficulty, they were able to express uh, an aspect of humanity that they couldn't otherwise. God wants us to learn to worship him, solely worship him. David wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible. And if you're going through a dark night of the soul, when you read the Psalms, they will be different. They will make more sense to you. When you don't have the usual securities, these things will speak to you. And I don't know if you know this about your Bible, but the translators give headings on the sections so that you can find what you're trying to read. Like, for, in, for instance, in Psalm 18, it says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. That's the heading. But there's an inscription below it. And the inscription is actually there in the manuscripts we have from the Hebrew. So it's included and considered part of the canon of Scripture. But it tells us something about when the psalm was written. So look at what it says in Psalm 18. It says, to the choir master... A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So as he's fleeing Saul and God is protecting him one time after another after another, he begins to pray like this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I can tell you my prayer life was way stronger in those three times when I was transitioning and didn't know where it was going to end up. Where the usual things I could lean on were gone, I prayed better. I sought the Lord. It was a spiritual revival, even though it was emotionally unnerving. That's part of the dark night of the soul. And not just David, but Jesus as well. Jesus had a public ministry that was very sparse. 
He was mostly poor slash middle class. He didn't have a place to lay his head, he said. He depended on the charity of the people he ministered to. He had very difficult times. He was persecuted at times. He, was, he went from place to place to place. And he didn't trust himself, entrust himself to anyone else in, other than the Lord, his father. In John chapter 2, it says this. Now, as Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about a man, about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. In other words, Jesus didn't trust his disciples for support. He didn't trust the signs he could do for support. He didn't trust the religion or the temple or the, even the scriptures themselves. Jesus leaned on the Father for his complete support and did that all the way through. And the thing that's amazing in, in the Lord is we see in him the Romans 8.28 principle, which is this, that in all things, God works good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So if you look at the cross, a symbol of torture and evil, and you see Jesus living this difficult life, trusting God the whole way, God redeemed things through that cross. He took that evil and he applied it to us so that we could be forgiven. God worked a great victory in doing that. God shows us something about how he can use even the worst things to bring about good. He's trustworthy. We ought to trust him. There is much gain through these difficult times. Now, let me give you three, three quick things about these dark nights of the soul. The first is this. Welcome the process of the dark night of the soul when it comes. Pray the Psalms. You will pray the scriptures in a different way. Even though you don't feel his presence in these times and you think, God is smiting me, why am I failing? Why is, this, why is my life falling apart? Why doesn't he seem to hear me when I pray? Here's, here's the promise of scripture. I will always be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what God tells us. And we know his word is trustworthy because he also said, kill me, and on the third day I will rise. And he did that. Therefore, all of his promises are validated. And he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will give the Holy Spirit to you. So in the dark night of the soul, even though you don't feel God, he is with you and he loves you. And I can tell you this, I'm looking forward in faith that the day will come when you will look back on that tough time and you will say, I am so thankful for it. Because from God's vantage point, I understand how that contributed to his love for me and what he was doing to grow me and prepare me for an eternal relationship with him. The day will come when you will thank him for that. It's impossible in the moment to see that. So I'm saying, welcome the process and just trust God who loves you. Second, recognize the idolatry of leaning on things other than God for your support. It is idolatry to depend on anything other than him. And I wish that we as a country would have a different name for the celebration this weekend. Instead of Independence Day, we should have Dependence Day, where we depend on God. We, we don't have freedom from religion. We have freedom of religion. And it's idolatrous to trust in anything other than God. And God, who is jealous, is pursuing us. And he's calling us to dependence on him. And then third, Acknowledge that you were designed for that kind of dependence. If you think all the way back to Adam and Eve before sin entered in, they walked in the garden with God. Day by day, they had fellowship with him. They trusted him to provide their food and everything they needed. 
And then they disobeyed and sin entered in. And that's when the shame came and the hiding and the, the temptation of putting themselves on the throne of their heart instead of God in that spot. And only he can reside there and satisfy. There is nothing that can fully support us. If you trust in anything else, eventually it fails. And that's the proven test of history. You trust in money, it can be gone overnight. You trust in a relationship, it can end. You trust in a job, you can be fired. The pink slip can come. I don't care how secure you think you are, that can happen in a moment's notice. You trust in your strength and abilities, you can get sick tomorrow. It happens to people all the time. Trust in all these things and they will fail you. But trust in God, that is where you'll be satisfied forever because that's how you were made. It's not like trusting in God is training wheels and eventually you take them off. You are permanently made to depend on him, and that's where you'll be satisfied. That's the only place. Now, I want to close by praying a prayer that comes from a chapter in a book that I love. And I've told you I'm a big fan of A.W. Tozer. In his book, The Pursuit of God, he has a chapter called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And listen to his prayer, and let's make it ours at the end of this sermon. Father, I want to know you, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of that parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then will you make the place of your feet glorious. Then will my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you yourself will be the light of it, and there shall be no night or darkness there. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.